La 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 That's what you do? <laughs> Is that not what you do when you're in? I don't do any of that. I mean, you're a pro. Yeah, right. I got to get numbered up. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Code Switch. It's... What's my name? <laughs> I'm Jean Demby. <laughs> and I'm Shireen Marisol Moraji. Time to bring in... All right. What's up? Yeah. Three, two, one. This is Code Switch, our anniversary episode. Ooh. I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. Happy anniversary, Jean. Where my gift at? Happy anniversary to you, too. I'm Jean Demby, by the way. <laughs> we did it our first years in the books. Over a year, if you want to get technical. Yeah, because we've been on CP time, so <laughs> a little bit late. But over the last year, Shireen, uh, mm-hmm. a lot has happened. Understatement? Yeah, like a little bit of understatement there. We talked about the legacy of our first black president, which was a thing that happened. The implications of a Trump presidency, which is a thing that is happening. We talked about whiteness and about campus fights over trigger warnings. What it's like for black and brown kids to be bused from the cities to the suburbs. We dug into the Orlando nightclub shooting, Mm -hmm. race and horror films, what makes someone a good immigrant, casual racism, and the guide to what not to do. Does that make sense? The guide to what not to do. (laughs) Identity confusion. We talked a lot about identity confusion. And the list goes on and on. Mm. But on this episode, Gene, we and the rest of the Code Switch team are going to update some of the stories that really seem to resonate with our listeners. And we want to kick off this celebration with our most polarizing episode, judging by all the emails that flooded in. So much love and so much hate. So much. So much. (laughs) We call that episode, Hold Up, It's Time for an Explanatory Comment. And in that episode, we just pulled back the curtain on this very real thing that happens in our edit sessions where we talk about and fight over whether or not we should explain certain references to our audience or not. And it was inspired by a listener who thought we didn't do a good enough job explaining who Tupac was. So for that episode, we brought in Hari Kondabolu to help us with this dilemma. Hari's a comedian. You've probably heard him on the Politically Reactive podcast with Kamal Bell. He's given a lot of thought to this. In the clip you're about to hear from that episode, Shireen is telling us about this one time where she used an explanatory comma in a story that aired on NPR. I was doing a piece about a Ghanaian web series and the director referenced Nollywood. And right after she referenced Nollywood, I said, she's talking about West Africa's version of Hollywood in Nigeria, also known as Nollywood. What do you think? Hmm. Sh- should I? <laughs> that, hmm. I, I feel like we don't do that for Bollywood. No, we wouldn't do that for Bollywood. No, because it's it's broad enough. But Nollywood, like, I know what it is. I mean, I also grew up in Queens, you know. I right. Pick up stuff. I tried to make it as natural as possible within the flow of the yeah. story. But it just felt like it took me out of the story. And I'm assuming that it probably took other people out of the story. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's better. Well, I mean, if if I was, let's say I was Nigerian. And I heard that immediately. It's like, oh, this is not for me. Yeah, that's so that is the yeah. thing I think that we're worried about. That feeling right there is like, okay, we explain this. And you're like, oh, this is two one one for the people that we think we're talking to. Now, the conclusion we came to, even though it may pain us at times, we should err on the side of the explanatory comma. And, you know, you'll hear it in the episodes now because we make it really clear. Here comes the explanatory comma. (laughs) It's our way of showing the listeners who know that, you know, we know and we see you. And because we never addressed the listener emails, we brought back Hurry On to talk about the response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently people really uh, had a lot to say about it, huh? He says with understatement, oh my God. (laughs) was like, we've never gotten that many emails about any episode. Oh my God. I was reading through them this morning and I was getting 
like I was sweating. I was getting so <laughs> heated. Agitated. Worked out. Siced, as they say in D.C. All of those things. Anyway, we're going to keep the names out of this. But these are real emails that we've shortened to their very essence. And here's one from an English language learner teacher or teacher of English language learning. She works in the Bronx. She was so offended that she unsubscribed from our podcast. She writes... I understand that you're angered by the need to constantly explain your life experiences, but as a nearly 50-year-old white woman who grew up in a flyover state and is desperately caught up in the need for the world to be a little kinder and a little more informed, I'd like to gently let you know that there are some of us who did not grow up on the coasts. I didn't grow up learning about rappers or gangs, and yes, I needed the explanation for Nollywood, no matter how much you think I should be tuned in to what is cool and hip. The email ends with, quote, don't get me wrong, I will be informed, but it will sadly no longer be with you. <sighs> Shereen, you had to read that one. I couldn't have read that one. No, I just couldn't have got through it. We got a bunch of emails like that. Man. Like, and I think we were all surprised at the amount of alacrity that greeted this episode, because it seemed like a fairly straight ahead conversation to us. Uh, (laughs) First of all, as a person of color who grew up born and raised in in this culture, I've been forced to understand white references, right? And I use that phrase very broadly, but like anything that's in the mainstream that wasn't intended for us, which is most things, because, you know, for the longest time, oh, I don't think they got money. So what's the point of making programming for them? Because they can't buy the products, right? And secondly, with regards to not being able to, how I'm from the coast. How will I ever understand? First of all, is that some kind of code for coast? There's people of color in the middle of the country, too. So I, I don't know what that means. And also, you know, if, if there's some confusion or stuff, this isn't like 40 years ago. Just Google it. Pause the podcast. <laughs> Google it. And then continue. A lot of people said that, you know, we sounded angry. In the episode? Did we sound angry? I mean, we were honest. I think maybe that's part of what it is. Like, passion and honesty and, like, giving people a sense of these are the conversations that really happen, like you said in your, like, editorial meetings. They're like, no, no, no. Give us the polish after you've compromised, please. Oh, is that what we've been doing? (laughs) We We want this stuff that doesn't show your full self until we're ready to see it. No, we were opinionated and had ideas. And we didn't say please and thank you. Well, I mean, there were people shouting out whatever device they were listening to our podcast on and basically saying, finally, you've put words to something I've been feeling for so long. And I want to read one of those letters. Hey, fam. No, no explanatory commas ever. No mainstream podcast is explaining who Bach is. So F that explanatory comma. I didn't get one. My kids don't. Okay, sure. In a conversation, I'll give an explanatory comma to people I like. That's what decent people do. But if you're listening to a podcast, damn, son, get on Google. Bach, of course, is referring to Sebastian Bach, the hair metal god from the 1980s. From the 1980s, yeah. (laughs) Obviously. Obviously. (laughs) The fact I know that reference says a lot. (laughs) I shouldn't need to know that. (laughs) I didn't even listen to that yeah that is a waste of brain space but you know we grew up at a time when we were all watching the same things and now you can go and find whatever it is that you want so there are less and I maybe this is for millennials or generation Z or generation alpha maybe we do have to explain more things because there isn't this common cultural these common cultural references that the three of us have huh how do they learn things I wonder 
They must hmm. they must use the internet and Google them. <laughs> What's wrong with everybody? <laughs> Have we missed the last fifteen years? Oh my god! Just Google it. Oh my god, the answers are all there, waiting for you. It's magical. This this podcast is underwritten by Google. I know. By the way, completely. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry, man. Thank you so much for, for rocking with us, for coming back and being angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Passion is seen as anger, and I get, it's really upsetting. It makes us sound like we're crazy, and we're not crazy. We're not. Welcome to being a woman of color. Mm. Spicy Latina. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we always compared to food? Always. Why is every, it's always masala this or masala that? Like, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm not even good with spice. The ever zesty Hari Kondabolu Gene. I hope folks get that we were just having fun there. We, I mean, you know, still RIP to our inbox, to our Twitter mentions. It's times like this when I'm so happy I'm not as Twitter famous as you, tweet famous. I'm going to tag you in all the responses. You best not. <laughs> just CC Shereen, <laughs> CC Radio Mirage. Let's turn from something light to something heavy. Uh, over the past year, we've really tried to give you a mix of news and entertainment. And Gene, you spoke with our teammate Adrian Florido to get an update on an immigration story that we covered this year. All right, y'all. So a little while back, you might remember Adrian talked to a woman named Jeanette Vizgueta. Just to refresh your memory, she's 40-something. She's a mom. She was born in Mexico, and she lives in Denver. But she lives in a church, and that's because she's not a legal resident of the United States. And she was facing deportation after she was convicted for using fake documents to get her job as a janitor. So this church, the First Unitarian Society of Denver, they offered her sanctuary, and they allowed her to move into their building's basement to protect her from immigration agents because immigration agents avoid going to churches and schools to arrest people. And so in the process, Jeanette has become the face of the sanctuary church movement. But when Adrian spoke to her in April, she had no idea when she was going to be able to leave. And she like literally cannot leave the premises of the church building. So Adrian is back. Adrian, you recently went to Denver and you visited Jeanette to see what was happening with her. So where does that story stand now? Well, Jeanette is, is out of sanctuary. Okay. She uh, actually left the church in late May after ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, granted a two-year stay in her deportation case. Tengo muchas emociones. Okay, so how did this happen? Well, Jeanette, you know, had a lot of support from advocates in Denver, mm-hmm. including her congressman and, and one of Colorado's senators. And they both introduced private bills in her name. Okay, real quick. What is a private bill? Yeah, a private bill is, is a bill introduced into the U.S. Congress to help literally just one person. Huh. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, so her senator introduced a bill to grant Jeanette legal residence. It's a strategy that some people facing deportation have tried to use to resolve their cases in the past. Okay, so these private bills you're talking about, like, do they work? Well, I mean, it, it depends on what you mean, right? These bills are, you know, rarely passed out of Congress, but the long process by which they wind their way through Congress does, you know, by time. Uh... So Immigration and Customs Enforcement has tended to grant people with these private bills two-year stays of their deportation cases so the the legislative process can play out. And that's what happened with Jeanette. She got a two-year stay, meaning that she's safe for at least two years. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so after Jeanette got out, she left the sanctuary church, you went to visit her at her home in Denver, right? Well, I mean, it's not actually her home because when she moved into the church, she had given up the apartment she was renting. When I visited her, she was staying with her ex-partner, the father of her kids. It's a small house with with a huge yard where her kids were running around. Tengo dos años para seguir trabajando bien fuerte y buscar otras opciones y 
y regresar a casa. Jeanette told me that she's happy to be out, obviously, because, you know, she is back with her kids. But because she didn't really have a place of her own yet, she was feeling kind of uh, unmoored. Hmm. So what has she been up to now that she's, like, out? Well, finding an apartment of her own. Mm-hmm. She's also planning this cross-country tour. She, she wants to visit a bunch of churches around the U.S. to talk about the importance of sanctuary and how to do it humanely and, and sensitively. Yeah, so because in your earlier reporting, right, there was this tension between the churches that were offering sanctuary, right? The churches, they're trying to protest what they see as inhumane and cruel deportation practices. But the people they take in, like Jeanette, are necessarily trying to lay low, you know, so these things are naturally in tension. Yeah, and this is what Jeanette wants to go talk about, right? Like how to do sanctuary sensitively. Hmm. But, you know, she can't actually launch this tour yet because although ICE did confirm in an email that it had granted her a stay, it didn't really give her any details, no legal document. So she's still waiting to hear whether she'll be allowed to travel. Wow. You know, whether she'll be allowed to work during these two years. So, you know, while Jeanette waits for all these things to fall into place, you know, she's, she's still getting calls all day, every day from people who heard about her and are facing deportation themselves and, 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 and want her help and advice. And Jeanette cannot stand, you know, not picking up these phone calls because she told me she knows exactly what it feels like to be desperate for help but feel like there's no one there to help. Hmm. She actually got one of these calls when I was sitting there with her. I remember that, that imagined ringtone. Hello? Yeah, so she's still doing all of this stuff in this cramped little space that she's sharing. But because she still doesn't have that legal document in her hand, Jeanette is still looking over her shoulder all the time. She doesn't want to do anything that would run her afoul of ICE or give them any reason to come after her again. Uh, so, you know, that, that hasn't changed. That's our teammate Adrian Florido. You know what has changed over the last year we've been doing this podcast? Mm. Our president. Oh, have you noticed? Have you noticed? <laughs> and we did an episode examining a lot of that white fear and fury that we saw in the last campaign for the Oval Office. We called it Apocalypse or Racial Kumbaya, America After November 8th. And we invited Whitney Dow onto the show. He's the creator of something called The Whiteness Project. And he's been interviewing white Americans since July of 2014 about their relationship to and their understanding of their own whiteness. And we asked him on that episode, where's all this fear coming from? It's both disconnected from reality and it's connected to reality. Like The country is changing. There's no question the country's changing. The demographics of the country are changing. And I think that, you know, one of the things about being white is that the narrative we've always told about ourselves and the narrative that we know actually to be true of America and white America is kind of in conflict with each other. And so I think that they're sort of grappling with this real sense of loss. That episode was taped before we had a President Donald Trump. But, Jereen, you actually just caught up with Whitney by Skype to see how the Whiteness Project has changed in the Trump era. Congratulations, Whitney Dow. You were a guest on the second most downloaded episode in the history of the Code Switch podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. That was the case when I hit him up a few weeks ago, but I think that episode called Racial Imposter Syndrome blew that stat out of the water. Still, Whitney's episode was one of our most downloaded episodes. I totally believe it. One of the things that seems to be true about the episodes for which we get the most response, tell me if you think this is wrong, are the ones about identity really specifically, like the ones that they like hit people really close to home, right? When mm-hmm. they have to think about where they live, so like racial imposter, but also like whiteness, which is the thing that a lot of people don't sort of 
interrogate and unpack very often. Exactly. And Whitney told me that for this next phase of the Whiteness Project, he's actually going to be working with researchers at Columbia to gather data on 10,000 white people. And they're doing these oral histories with a thousand of them around the country, starting with the states in the Midwest that voted for President Obama and then went for Trump this time around. Whether you liked President Obama or not, There was a lot of people that it made them feel good about being American by voting for him, especially the first time, that it showed that we were starting to move towards something, starting to move to be, you know, a more truly multiracial society where we could be represented as a by a president who's half black and half white. And I'm really interested to see what is going on that you would look at that story, look at yourself in relation to that story, and then wholeheartedly and fully embrace someone like Donald Trump, who's telling the exact opposite story. I don't want to get too far out ahead of myself because we're just starting the process of gathering all the data and doing the interviews. But that's one of the things we're trying to figure out. That's Whitney Dow, founder of The Whiteness Project, which is actually going to be going through a name change. What, What are you calling it now? We're now calling it Facing Whiteness. We wanted something to be slightly more prescriptive. Thanks, Whitney. Thank you, Shireen. We'll be checking in with Whitney over this next year to talk about what he's hearing out there and hopefully playing some of those interviews for you on the podcast. He's gathering data on Michigan as we speak. And it's time for a break. But don't go anywhere because remember Nate Parker? Who? What? Who? Who? Stay with us and we'll refresh your memory. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card, delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash codeswitch. Hey y'all, Sam Sanders here. These days I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Gene. Shireen. Code switch. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. <laughs> it's not a joke, but it was super uncomfortable and made my stomach hurt after watching uh. it. And for those of you who don't remember, <laughs> that was from the Oscars in February. The award for Best Picture was accidentally given to La La Land, but Moonlight was the real winner. Awkward. Before all of that happened, I actually sat down with Barry Jenkins. This was before he was the Academy Award TM winning Barry Jenkins. Mm. It was last October, around the time when Moonlight was first starting to seriously get a lot of awards buzz. It was an episode that we called Everyone is Talking to Barry Jenkins, but our interview was the best. That is my favorite Code Switch podcast title of all time. <laughs> this is one of mine, too. We're going to play my favorite part of the ep. We talked about a lot of stuff like Barry's childhood and growing up and black masculinity. And in this clip, you're talking to Barry about a part of the movie that really resonated with you. Chiron, who everyone calls Little, is about to take a bath. 
you and I were sort of talking on Facebook actually mm-hmm. um, about this quiet scene. It's like there's no dialogue, um, in which Little is boiling mm-hmm. a pot of water on the stove, mm-hmm. um, so he can take that hot water and take a bath with that water. And you see him walk over, you know, puts cold yeah, water in yeah, it to make it, it yeah. tepid. That like literally was my life growing up. And you were like, yeah, me too. I, I remember looking at my girlfriend once because we had a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. She always complains that I take long showers. I was like, because mm-hmm. I couldn't take a, I took and take. <laughs> Bruh, right? Right. It's, right. It's, it's the simple things, bro. Yeah. Like, to this day, I'm, like, really studious about having, like, four rolls of deodorant. Right. right. Always in, in, in the bathroom because I remember a time when I couldn't afford deodorant. Exactly you know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that scene for me is, is doing a lot of work. This character of Paula, who's based on my mom, you know, my mom tried for as long as she could to keep it together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Miami's a very hot place. But then in the fall and the winter, you know, it cools off a little bit, so you don't need AC. Sure. And so you just open the windows, you get that breeze. And so maybe you don't need to keep the lights on because you got a gas stove. You right, know? right. And you can still heat up the pot, even though the electricity's off, to take a warm bath. Absolutely. And so that's kind of what that scene is about mm-hmm. um, in certain ways. But I think also, too, that scene more than any other in the film I've had people come up to me that I would not expect to go I can relate to that black folks white folks mm-hmm. all anybody who grew up in a, in a kind of hard way you know where you had to rub two sticks together you know mm-hmm. they kind of know what that is and it's interesting because that's, that's not even one of the more uh, visually or orally uh, immersive moments but mm-hmm. but it is something that people can relate to and I think that's why you know so far all these places I've been people identify uh, with the movie So while the director Barry Jenkins had an amazing year, another black filmmaker was embroiled in controversy. Our teammate Karen Grisby-Bates covered that messy story for the podcast and you two talked about it, Shereen. Karen's here in studio with me and we're going to give the Cliffs notes for all of you who may have forgotten that filmmaker. His name is Nate Parker. And Shereen, he was a big deal this time last year. He directed his first feature, The Birth of a Nation, co-wrote and also starred in the film. And if the title sounds familiar, that's because it echoes a film made almost 100 years ago. D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation was a glorification of the Klan. And that rabidly racist film was one of the most successful in U.S. history. Nate Parker's movie was based on our country's bloodiest slave rebellion, led by an enslaved preacher named Nat Turner. I see now for every verse they use to support our bondage, there's another demanding our freedom. The Lord's spoken to me. Visions of what's to come. What are we going to do? We'll fight. I remember there was so much anticipation after birth previewed at Sundance. There was. There was rapturous response. It won the prestigious Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award, there was a bidding war for it, and Fox Searchlight paid over $17 million, the highest price ever paid at Sundance. People were saying it was Oscar-worthy, but about two months before it was set to hit theaters, Nate Parker's 17-year-old rape case made headlines. Parker and his best friend, who was also a co-writer on The Birth of a Nation, were accused of raping a classmate while they were all at Penn State. Parker was ultimately acquitted, many say because his accuser and he had had consensual sex before the incident. Now, his friend, Gene Celestine, was convicted, but then that conviction was overturned when the accuser refused to testify again. Sadly, his accuser committed suicide in 2012. Her family says, Shireen, it was because she was still devastated by that alleged sexual assault in college. In light of this news, Parker did what we might call an explanation tour of several media outlets, including 60 Minutes and Good Morning America. It was an attempt to do damage control. Here he is with GMA's Robin Roberts. I was falsely accused. You know, I was proven innocent. And I'm not going to apologize, you know, for for that. You know, I feel terribly about that situation. But at some point, 
you know, we gotta ask ourselves, like, why are we, you know, is this a film that is important to us? And Karen, we know how that explanation tour helped things. Not very much. In late September, just before the film opened, we talked all about this on the podcast. Yeah, we had a panel of people on, including producer and writer Goldie Taylor, who herself is a sexual assault survivor. I frankly have not been able to make a decision around the film. I certainly know that as a also as a as a producer and uh, as a writer that I would never work on a project with him because I probably could not sit next to him. And even if he is a completely you know innocent man as a survivor, I I couldn't do it. But could I then uh, consume his art? I'm not so sure that I can. I have to be honest. I stopped following this story once the film came out. How did it do? Birth opened respectably, but it wasn't anything like the cinematic juggernaut Fox Searchlight had hoped it would be. And it missed out on all the Oscar buzz that had been predicted for it. Hmm. For the people who are still curious about seeing this and want to, it's streamable in all the usual places now. I also haven't heard a thing about Nate Parker. It's been complete radio silence. Funny you should mention that, Shereen, because I was talking to L.A. film critic Tim Cogshell about that very recently, and Tim says he's been asking around, too. Where's Nate Parker? Where has Nate Parker gone? There's no hard evidence of Nate Parker's existence as an ongoing presence in Hollywood at all. No roles. He's not queued up to direct anything. There's nothing that he has written. He seems to have disappeared from the landscape. I have heard rumors, Shireen, of a new project he's involved in, but nobody would return my calls when I tried Mm -hmm. to check up on that. So maybe people don't want to kill it off before it's released, or maybe he's still too radioactive. Right now might not be the best time to resurface in light of the fact that Bill Cosby's still making headlines in the aftermath of the mistrial in his recent sexual assault case. Thanks, Karen. You're welcome. All right, so we're going to wrap up this episode with a story that had so many of you in your feelings. I think a bunch of our episodes made people cry, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Toughen up. Toughen up. (laughs) (laughs) We tagged in our teammate, Kat Chow, for this next one. Hey, Kat. Hey, Shireen. Let's listen to some tape from that episode that we did together called A Letter from Young Asian Americans to Their Families About Black Lives Matter. Mom, dad, uncle, auntie, grandfather, grandmother. We need to talk. That's the voice of a Vietnamese-American woman named Tian Dang, who we featured on the episode. You may not have grown up around people who are Black, but I have. Black people are a fundamental part of my life. They're my friends, my classmates and teammates, my roommates, my family. Today, I'm scared for them. This letter Tian's reading came out shortly after Philando Castile was shot and killed by a police officer in Minnesota. We talked about Philando Castile's story last week because a Minnesota jury acquitted the police officer, Jeronimo Yanez, who shot him. Hundreds of protesters took to the streets after the verdict was announced, furious that yet another cop who shot and killed a black man was found not guilty. Yeah. And last year, though, when news of Philando Castile's death surfaced, there was this video. It was a Facebook live stream of the aftermath of the shooting. And there was this one small part where his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, says the cop who shot him is Chinese. We now know that was not true. Regardless, it totally struck a nerve with Asian-American activists who support Black Lives Matter because it echoed something in the news from a couple years before. In 2014, there was a Chinese-American cop who killed an unarmed black man named Akai Gurley. And 
At the time, Asian Americans were divided along these generational lines on what the consequences should be. The older generation worried the officer would get a harsher treatment because he wasn't white. And the younger generation said that is so not the point. So after Philando Castile's death, dozens of young Asian Americans who support Black Lives Matter jumped into this Google Doc and they started co-writing a letter that they could share with their families. It basically said, hey... Black Lives Matter, and that's what we should be talking about. People from all around the world started translating that letter from English to all these other different Asian languages, including Vietnamese. Which brings us back to Tian Ding and her dad, Nam Ding. So Tian told me that she had never spoken to her father about something this political before, especially about race. I was just so nervous. My heart was beating. I stared at my screen for about five minutes, and finally I just said, just do it. Tian, she sent the letter to her dad. He immediately called her back, and she told me that she was ready for this fight. But something about the letter translated. And we got them on the phone for the podcast last year, and we had Tian translate their conversation. Và một người bạn tốt đối với các bạn bè, dầu bạn bè của mình là mang cái màu da gì, okay? Okay. I said, thank you, and I I know your struggle that you and mom had to go through so that I could have a better life (laughs) and I couldn't finish and he said I want you to continue being the good person you are and fighting for what you believe in and I believe in you. Tian's dad fled communist Vietnam and he knows how the government can shut down free speech. Tian, she grew up in America and is active in the Black Lives Matter protests. So Tian and her dad, they're from these very different worlds. But that letter, it helped change the way that they relate to each other, even if in a very, very small way. Obviously, a lot has happened in the world since we last checked in on Tian and her dad. Kat, you spoke with her recently. Are Tian and her dad still communicating about Black Lives Matter and all these issues that she's really passionate about? They are. And Tian, she told me that they're having these pretty regular talks about what's going on in politics just because there's so much. And her dad has been sending her these news articles that are in Vietnamese. And that's something that he's never really done before. And my impression of Tian is that this has kind of helped her see how he forms his opinions and how he kind of understands what's happening in the world. I had to check myself in my privilege of, okay, just because my dad doesn't speak English doesn't mean he doesn't know what's going on. Um, And I wish that more parents and kids of immigrants were able to have these kinds of conversations. So it sounds like Tian went from being super anxious to talk about her political beliefs with her immigrant dad, and now they're having regular chats, which is progress. I mean, they definitely don't agree on everything. And Tian told me her dad's accepted the fact that he can't do much to change things. So he probably won't be joining her at a protest anytime soon or ever. I think my dad has been fighting his whole life and he's just tired of fighting. Like He's old, he wants to retire, he just wants to live a happy life. And I think that's where he doesn't realize it, but I see him passing the baton on to someone else. Thanks, Kat. Later, Shereen. Okay, so that is our anniversary highlight room. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have new stuff and we're going to bring you some of our favorite stories about race that have aired on other podcasts, which is going to give us some time to do some reporting of our own. We're going to up our game for year two. And of course, because Shireen and I are both 90s R&B and hip hop heads, this is the song that's given us life. Tony, Tony, Tony's anniversary. I think it's self-explanatory. Yeah, pretty. Anniversary. Anniversary. 
And that's all for this week's episode. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch, and we want to hear from you. We love it when we hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. We're switching. We're switching our normal. I know. You oh. normally do this part. It's okay. So, Change is good. <laughs> Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Walter Ray Watson, Leah Danella, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Shireen produced this episode. We had original music by Ramteen Arablui. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team, Kat Chow, Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bates, and our intern is Aleli May Vuelta. Our editors are Sammy Yenigan and Steve Drummond. I'm Shuri Marisol Moraji. And I'm Jean Demby. Be easy. Peace. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. If you love this podcast, you might also love the TED Radio Hour. It's a show about what it means to be a human. We grieve, we experience joy, sadness, love, and jealousy. We can be cruel and empathetic. We have the capacity to imagine the future and the past. And at a time when it seems we're so divided, the TED Radio Hour explores what makes us unique among all species. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you get your podcasts.